Well, if you have your Bible, take it out and let's turn to Romans 8. Romans 8, we're going to begin here. We'll end here. And we're going to travel a theological world in between. This is our final message in our general introduction to the millennium. And just to kind of tell you what's coming up next. Beginning next time, not next uh, Sunday evening, but the next time we're uh, preaching, we're going to delve into some alternative views of the millennium. We'll spend four messages on this. Because in many reform circles, to be honest with you, the dispensational premillennial view isn't just disagreed with, but it's mocked and even really not taken seriously. So I want you to have supreme confidence in the coming kingdom of Christ on earth. And so our next little mini-series will expose the major arguments, the, the hermeneutics, the Bible study methods, the theology of the major view in almost all reform circles, and that is amillennialism. And and I know that's a little bit um, detailed, maybe. But I want you to have that necessary foundation so that you can place your, yourselves in the shoes of all who have come to an amillennial view that there's no literal physical kingdom of Christ on earth. We'll also briefly touch on postmillennialism just to give at least a brief understanding of that issue as well. But that's what we'll do over the next few messages. But... For tonight, I want to finish our introductory series just dealing with the subject of dualism and maybe give a warning about the spiritual danger of dualism. I'll define dualism as we go along since the history behind it is important to understanding it. But I want to just start in Romans 8, beginning in verse 20, very familiar to us, and then we'll circle back to it. Romans 8, verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. This is familiar to us. This is a text that teaches us that the creation is not to blame for the corruption and the decay to which it's enslaved, that mankind is responsible for sin, which in turn has corrupted God's perfect creation. And Paul pictures the creation groaning and and longing for the end times when God redeems the elect into full glory, because then God will also be redeeming the creation back into its full glory. And that will be a process. Paul compares us with the creation, that just as creation is groaning, waiting for the freedom of the glory of the children of God, in verse 21, so we ourselves groan within ourselves, verse 23, as we wait for our glorified bodies. And we we understand that. 18 and 20-year-olds don't groan waiting for their glorified bodies. Add about six decades to that, and groaning is just part of, of your normal day. Now, these truths are very clear from this text. But there's a difficulty that lies with the theological system that lowers the importance and lowers the value of the physical and the material and proclaims that the invisible and the spiritual are of greater value. This creates a competition of sorts. 
Now, we'll finish up our time together back in Romans 8 because I think what we'll do in in between, we'll explain Romans 8. But for now, I want to present a thesis, just an argument that I hope will, I can prove this to you concerning dualism. And here's my thesis. The church and theology has been infiltrated to a large degree by the pagan philosophy of dualism. The church and theology has been infiltrated to a large degree by the pagan philosophy of dualism. And this dualism, this infiltration has significantly contributed to forming unbiblical views of the millennial kingdom of Christ. That it, it comes, these views do not come from a study of scripture, but from outside sources that I'll even call pagan. I'm going to give you five lines of evidence to try and prove this argument. And again, this is just an introductory message for our millennium series So it's not exactly a sermon. I'm just trying to give you some information. The five lines of evidence to prove that the church and theology has been infiltrated to a large degree by the pagan philosophy of dualism, and this has contributed to forming unbiblical views of the millennial kingdom of Christ. First line of evidence we'll call the beginning of trouble. The beginning of trouble happened with the popular thinking of Plato. And not to bore you with history, but this particular history has formed much of the theology of the church, and so it's important for you to know it. Plato was considered by many, still is considered by many, the greatest theological or philosophical thinker, rather, in history. He was a Greek philosopher who lived from 427 to 347 B.C., so four centuries before Christ. Plato believed that all of reality is primarily abstract, that the most ascendant glorious reality is not found in physical objects is not found in earthly experiences instead the most transcendent reality is found in what he called forms or ideas that surpass and they rise above the world of the physical that those things we can see hear taste touch or smell are lesser for plato anything physical is a liability it's it's a curse it's not a gift it's not a benefit very similar to Plato, Socrates taught that the body is nothing, nothing more than what he called a prison for the soul. Socrates deeply desired death so that he could be released from his body. He held that this was the ultimate goal of existence, to be released from the physical. The idea became known as Platonism and led to the next logical step in thinking that matter, meaning scientific matter, like things, stuff, is of a lower level, a lower degree than that which is spiritual and invisible. In other words, Plato set up a competition between that which you can see and perceive and that which you cannot see, that the conceptual is superior to the physical. So this is what's meant by dualism, that there's a tension between the material and the spiritual, and the spiritual is meant to be superior, or to make it easier to remember, even though they're spelled differently, that the physical is in a duel with the spiritual, as it were. Now, if this sort of idea sounds familiar to you, and maybe even sounds comfortable to you, and maybe even sounds like something that makes sense, that's because Platonism made its way a long time ago into the church and into Christian thinking and into theological writing. The biggest religious mutation of Platonism came to be known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism plagued the church during the 2nd and 3rd centuries, but was already being seen in infantile form as early as the the late 1st century. 
Why is this? Because Platonism was already ingrained in society for four centuries before the time of Christ, before the time of the church. And like Platonism, Gnosticism taught a dual reality, that of the spiritual and invisible and that of the physical and visible, and that true spirituality, according to Gnosticism, is achieved by some sort of higher knowledge of that which is invisible, that which is spiritual, that which you can't see. That's what you really focus on. And that's what the really, really spiritual Christians focus on. And now the church began to be infiltrated by unbiblical ideology that formed a new ethic. And the new ethic was that the spiritual world is superior to the material world. That all that is physical in the world is evil and that salvation in Christ applies to the soul only and any application to the body is really secondary. And the church has taught this for centuries that the history of the world is really pretty irrelevant. It's not really leading anywhere because history is physical and it's visible and so it holds very little significance to redemption and salvation. It's even made its way into a view of the Bible that doesn't really view the redemptive story of the Bible as really all that important. Now, of course, this view of the material being of a lesser value than the invisible has a major problem to contend with, doesn't it? And you're probably already thinking it. It must contend with the incarnation of Jesus Christ as a man. And so to try to placate Platonism and to try to make Gnosticism happy, the church saw the development of what is called Docetism. Docetism is the belief that Christ was an illusion of sorts, that he was a a magician, that he only seemed to be human, he only seemed to have human flesh. Never mind the great lengths that Jesus went to to demonstrate his humanity, eating, drinking, sleeping, showing the scars on his body. The reason docetism arose is because the reality of the incarnation of Christ didn't fit with Platonistic thinking. So in the very early, early days of the church, how did the faithful in the church, how did they build a great and grand defense against this growing heresy, this growing arrogant separation between the physical and the spiritual? One of the major, and some would say the major defense against Gnosticism And all the implications really taken straight from Platonism, you ready for this, was premillennialism. That was the defense. Heroes of the faith such as Irenaeus and Tertullian stood firmly for premillennial theology in their efforts to battle against this conceited notion that the truly spiritual people reject the physical and we only embrace that which is invisible and, and ethereal. Irenaeus in his writings leans heavily and rightly so on the books of Daniel and Revelation to form a theology of a coming earthly physical kingdom. For Irenaeus, the most logical and biblical end to redemptive history was just that, redemptive, the bringing back of God's original plan. God had created a physical world, physical humanity in Genesis, which had been polluted by sin, And rather than doing away with the physical or or denigrating and and degrading the material, God would redeem. He would bring back the original plan of a perfect physical world with perfected physical people in a glorious eternal kingdom on this earth. In fact, think about this for a minute. If we'll just use a little bit of logic that God has given us, 
the separation of the physical and the spiritual. Or if I could put it this way, the separation of the body and the soul. What do we call that? Death. And death is part of the curse. Irenaeus held that eschatology is infinitely more important than just a heady academic interest in the end times. Much more importantly, a proper understanding of the end times, according to Irenaeus, was pivotal as a guard against dismantling the unity of all the Scripture, the unity of God's purposes in the grand scope of history, and the total 100% consistency of His plan across time. And for Irenaeus, the return of Christ and the, the coming kingdom of Christ on earth, it reinforced the central thrust of Scripture. And that is that God created a physical world. He entered into that physical world to redeem us, to enjoy an eternal future in this physical world. And to bring that about, God will be victorious over all that the kingdom of Satan would bring against this purpose. Now, you might say, what does this have to do with the millennium? I thought this series was about the millennium. Remember I told you in our introductory message that we're building a massive foundation and we'll climb our way to the top in the coming months. What does it have to do with the millennium? Platonism basically was the most major source outside of the Bible to shape Christian theology in the opening centuries of the church. Augustine of Hippo, 354 to 430 A.D., was incredibly influenced by Platonism. And that's not just a guess. He writes it openly. Earlier, third century theologians such as Clement of Alexandria and Origen dipped heavily into Platonism to form their theology. In fact, Origen even came dangerously close to considering denying the physical resurrection of Christ because the physical resurrection of Christ didn't fit Platonism. As one systematic theology explains from history, Augustine, quote, believed that the idea of an earthly kingdom of Jesus was carnal and opted for the view that the kingdom of God is a spiritual entity, the church. His spiritual view, listen to this, his spiritual view of God's kingdom, as explained in his work, The City of God, came to be known as amillennialism. This has been also dubbed the spiritual vision model of eschatology, which elevates spiritual realities over physical matters. Augustine's influence was incredibly pervasive, influencing the church for a thousand years after his death, and today still incredibly influential, 1,600 years later. Augustine viewed the kingdom of God as spiritual and as equal to the church age, that we are in the kingdom now. We are the kingdom The thousand years of Revelation 20 was for Augustine the same as the church age. This became normal Roman Catholic dogma as well, which now made the church institution the same as the kingdom of God on earth. Ask any uh, Roman Catholic priest or any cardinal, what is the kingdom of God? They'll say the church is the kingdom. That's normal Roman Catholic doctrine. And what was the impact on the church of the total dominance of Augustinian thinking? One historical theologian writes this, Ancient Christian premillennialism weakened to the point of disappearance when the spiritual vision model of eternity became dominant in the church. A future kingdom on earth simply did not fit well into an eschatology that stressed personal ascent to a spiritual realm. If you're thinking, this sounds kind of like Hinduism. You're right, it does. In other words... 
Augustine's interpretation of Revelation 20 is being fulfilled in a spiritual, invisible manner through the church. In this age, this was not based on a thorough search of the overall scope of Scripture. It was based on bending the knee to the most prevalent philosophical thought in his day, and that was Platonism. First line of evidence, the beginning of trouble. Give you a second line of evidence we'll call the nature of humanity. The nature of humanity. The nature of humanity points to unity, not dualism. It points to the integration of the physical and the spiritual, not the separation of the two. After God created the physical creation, including animals with character and individuality and personality, such that Adam named them accordingly. And more importantly, after God created Adam himself as being with body and soul, Together, remember God's pronouncement in Genesis 1.31, and God saw all that he made, and behold, it was, what? Very good. The creation of a physical earth, a world of material substance, was the context for the creation of mankind and of the very first kingdom of God on earth. God provided us a physical body with which to have dominion over the material world. And how important is the physical body Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the physical aspect of of humanity is so important that the resurrection of the physical body is a major component of soteriology, God's plan for redemption, and resurrection is a major component of judgment of those who will reject Christ as well. That the saved will be rewarded for all eternity in physical bodies and the lost will be punished for all eternity in physical bodies. In John 5, 25-29, Jesus affirms that the saved will rise again for reward and the lost will rise again for what Jesus calls a resurrection of judgment. Now, I don't want anybody to misunderstand. To be fair, all millennialists Our brothers in that camp, they do affirm physical resurrection as a necessary component of individual salvation. But that begs the question all the more, and that's precisely why it's so incongruent with that point of agreement that we have with them to somehow spiritualize so many other aspects of God's overall redemptive plan, including completely negating and nullifying any sort of physical kingdom of Christ on this earth prior to the final state. Or if I could put it this way, our human bodies are woven into biblical salvation. We don't view the human body as somehow less or inherently evil simply because it's physical. At creation, Adam was given a sinless, perfect body. But the entrance of sin into the world through Adam brought us corruption and death. Then now all human bodies decay and age and die. The body you have is in what Paul calls a humble state. Philippians 3.21, he calls this in Romans 7.24, the body of this death. Our non-glorified bodies are incapable of entering the eternal state. Paul explains it like this in 1 Corinthians 15.50, Now I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. He's not saying that flesh and blood are bad. He's just saying that the flesh and blood as it is now can't enter into eternity successfully. But that's exactly why Jesus was raised from the dead. He's called in 1 Corinthians 15, 
the first fruits of a resurrected people to live on this earth forever. Listen to the unity of body and soul. In 2 Corinthians 5.3, Paul compared an existence without a body to, quote, being found naked. How about the great promises of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 that the dead in Christ will rise, verse 16, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, verse 17. What happens to the physical bodies of those who are raptured? Do they just disintegrate because it's better to shed the physical for the purer existence of a non-material, non-physical existence? No. 1 Corinthians 15.51, Paul gives us this glorious declaration. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. Our great hope, according to Philippians 3, 20 and 21, is that we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by His working through which He is able to subject even all things to Himself, including your dying body. First line of evidence, the beginning of trouble. Second, the nature of humanity. Let me give you a third line of evidence. The result of procreation. The result of procreation. We can even consider the very nature of the creation of people by means of procreation. Now, operating under the biblical idea that life begins at conception, we all agree on that. My observation, it's just anecdotal, but my observation has been that very often the Christian attributes the creation of the body of the baby in the womb to the natural God-given process of procreation, but the creation of the soul, the immaterial part of the person, to God as a miraculous act. I think that's generally the default position of most believers. And there is definitely biblical precedent to speak at least in general terms about God giving the soul of a person, but there's other variables involved. So we have to explore this, and I'll explain why. There's basically two major options. The first major option we could call creationism. Creationism, that's not speaking of the issue of original Genesis 1 creation. This is creationism to say that God creates each individual soul at the moment of conception of the body. And to be fair, there is, at least on the surface, support for this in Scripture. In Genesis 2-7, God obviously created Adam's soul along with his body, But Adam's case is completely unique, really can't use that as a precedent. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says that God gave the spirit or the soul of a man to him. Isaiah 42.5 says that God gave a spirit to humanity. Zechariah 12.1 says that God forms the spirit of man within him. Hebrews 12.9 says that God is the father of our spirits. And there's good historical support for creationism as well from theologians such as Lactantius, Jerome, Thomas Aquinas, and John Calvin. The other option, theologians call traducianism or traducianism. This is from a Latin word that means to transfer or to transmit. This view says that the body and the soul are transmitted or transferred from the parents to the children by the natural process of procreation. 
that a direct miraculous intervention by God is not required. Now, obviously, common sense tells us that the conception of a child is marvelous and wondrous, but let's be precise about the definition of the term miraculous. The miraculous is technically something that is impossible to achieve by human beings. The parting of the Red Sea, the instant healing of organic diseases, resurrection from the dead, that's the miraculous. Human reproduction, yes, it's amazing, and we may be free to use the term miraculous, I suppose, in the, in the sense of mysterious or awe-inspiring But human reproduction is something God has created humans with the ability to achieve. And the Traducian view says that Adam's soul was created directly by God, but the rest of us receive our soul from our parents at conception as a part of the procreation process that God designed. And there's also good support for this in Scripture. Genesis 5.3 says that Adam had a son in his own likeness and image. This includes the holistic idea of the soul as well. Jesus said in John 3.6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that every human's total nature comes from his parents. Hebrews 7.10 describes Levi as still in the loins of his father, Abraham. When Levi's great-grandfather Abraham met the priest Melchizedek, This was the description given. In other words, Levi is described as yet to be conceived with the assumption that conception creates the whole person. The Traducian view also enjoys historical support. Tertullian, Gregory of Nyssa, Martin Luther, many others. Luther had a pretty good reason for being a Traducianist. His specific reason is that Traducianism is best explained best explains, rather, the passing down of sin nature and total depravity. The Old Testament scholar Franz Delich in the 19th century argued that this view is consistent with the fact that God created all things in six days, then he rested from creating, including the activity of creating souls. Now, if you say, would you be willing, Pastor Steve, to die for this position? No, not really, not for this one. I won't take a hard position on this because all would agree from Scripture that God is the creator of all things and therefore He is ultimately the creator of our souls and that adequately explains the verses which seem to indicate the creationist view, the direct creation of the soul view. But you wouldn't use the same logic in this way. You wouldn't say that since God created the wood from which you made a piece of furniture, God directly created that piece of furniture. We wouldn't say that. We would say that you, made in the image of God, were the means by which God created that piece of furniture. You have to put the means in there. I believe that the burden of proof is on the creationists to show from Scripture that our bodies are made through a God-given process, but that our souls are directly, supernaturally created by God. One theologian writes this, As a complex unity of body and soul it is probably best to conclude that our entire being, including the soul, is a result of the God-ordained procreation process. And you might say, well, why does that really matter? There, there is a tipping point. The, the scales are fairly even, but there is one variable that, that goes heavily in favor of Traducianism. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. The sinfulness of mankind is directly related to the procreation process. 
If God creates each soul directly as an act apart from the physical procreation process, then it becomes very difficult to explain total depravity. It becomes difficult to explain a sin nature because essentially God created you with a sin nature. Now, what does that have to do with dualism? With this long-held belief that's made its way into Christian theology that the physical and the spiritual are at odds with one another, that the invisible is inherently superior to that which is visible. Here's the point. Even in the process of conception, even in the process of creating a new human being, God has designed it such that the body and the soul are created as one unit in one moment, in one act. You can't get more unified than this. So to try to create a false competition, a false dichotomy, it's, it's denying the very created order itself, even going to the, very, the, the basics of procreation. To say that the kingdom of God being invisible and spiritual and ethereal is qualitatively superior than being visible and spiritual is antithetical. It's hostile to the very nature of mankind and creation. We were made in one moment. And that's how we view all of Scripture, all of theology, that we are physical and spiritual put together. Not in competition. Oh, the kingdom of God most definitely includes the invisible and the spiritual united beautifully with the visible and the physical. Let me put it this way. To celebrate in awe and wonder that Amos 9 promises that in the coming millennial kingdom, crops will be so abundant and so plentiful that the harvesters will be catching up with the planters. That's not unspiritual. That's not lower. That's not less. It's marvelous that God is returning the earth to what it was like in Eden. That's a marvelous thing. How it was always intended to be. The first line of evidence, the beginning of trouble. Second, the nature of humanity. Third, the result of procreation. I'll give you a fourth line of evidence I'll call the corrupting of bibliology. The corrupting of bibliology. Now, under the broad term of bibliology, we would include all things pertaining to the study of the Bible, including how to interpret the Bible. Dualism brought into the church has had the effect of mixing worldly philosophy into Bible study methods and into theological systems, but I want to focus on Bible study methods. The Apostle Paul, I've already read a couple of verses from this, but he wrote a massive 58 verse long defense of physical resurrection to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15. Why to them? And why to go to such lengths? The Corinthians have been saturated in the Greek philosophy based in Platonism that taught dualism. They'd been led to believe that the physical is unsuited and irreconcilable with the spiritual. In fact, one of the beliefs that the young Corinthian church was dealing with was a belief that even sexual union within marriage was evil. And Paul had to fight back against that in 1 Corinthians 7. That because that involves the physical, that it must somehow be wrong. A major component of Paul's defense was to appeal to the resurrection of Christ himself. And he argued that the whole of Christian theology rests on the resurrection of Christ and that a Christianity without the resurrection of Christ would make Christians the most pitiful of all people. In verse 19, 
And as you read through this epic tower of defense of the doctrine of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, you, you notice that the resurrection of Christ soars gloriously into two, minimum of two, purposes. There's the soteriological purpose, the salvation purpose of the resurrection of Christ, that since death came through one man, Adam, by one man, Jesus Christ, resurrection from the dead will come. Verses 21 and 22. That's the soteriological purpose. We all get that. We all understand that. But you also see in 1 Corinthians 15, the end times, the eschatological purpose of the resurrection of Christ. And what is it? 1 Corinthians 15, 25 For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The amillennialist would say that Christ is reigning from heaven. A physical body is not necessary for Christ to reign from heaven. A physical body is necessary for Christ to reign on the earth and to put all his enemies under his feet. There's an eschatological purpose to the resurrection of Christ. And we would say that the resurrection of Christ stands as the greatest proof ever of the eternal combination of the physical and the spiritual. And Jesus promised to raise up, to redeem the bodies of those who belong to him. In John 6. Platonism has had a terrible effect on theology and Bible study methods. Let me just give you two big ones. The first one is a minimizing of physical life on new earth. I'm talking about Bible study methods right now. An effect on the minimizing of physical life on new earth. Throughout more recent church history, there has generally speaking been a, a large movement toward de-emphasizing biblical pictures of resurrection from the dead, of physical life on the new earth. I guarantee you that most Christians have never heard a sermon about new earth. They've never heard a sermon about the physical aspects of the end times. In fact, the concept of new earth itself is almost unspoken of in most evangelical circles. Personal eschatology, our understanding of, of heaven and so forth, is reduced to this. When I die, I go to heaven. It's always sad to me to attend a funeral and hear ostensibly mature believers give this comfort. Well, he's in a better place. Unbelievers do that. No, our comfort is, oh, he is in heaven right now, but it's an intermediate heaven. And that intermediate heaven is coming to a new earth. And in between, there will be an intermediate kingdom of Christ reigning on earth when he puts all of his enemies under his feet. After that, he will, he will destroy and melt down the old earth and the old heavens. He will bring all the lost of all the ages, all the unsaved before the great white throne. He will judge them, throw them into the lake of fire. He will recreate a new earth, new heavens, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and then we live there, we work there, we play there, we sing there, we worship there, we fellowship there, we eat there, we drink there for all eternity. Isn't that better than, oh, he's in a better place? Things like streets and gates and rivers and working and playing and eating and drinking, they're almost thought of as lowering the spiritual realities of some foggy, ethereal existence of floating around in a cloud for all eternity. And please note this, this perception is not due to theology derived from the Bible, it's due to tradition of looking down on anything physical. The promises of redemption and a future heavenly reality 
is not based in the absence of the physical. The spirit without a body is not a definition of the ultimate of human existence. It's a step down from the world Adam was created in and what he was created for. It's the second terrible effect of Platonism on Christian Bible study. The negative influence of Philo and Origen. Philo and Origen, they came after Plato. Philo, who lived right around the time of the birth of Christ, was an Alexandrian Jew. And Philo had a a goal. He wanted to mix the very best of Jewish heritage with Platonism. He wanted to marry the two. And this led him to becoming the leading proponent of allegorizing scripture, of finding supposed higher metaphysical, invisible, ethereal meanings that were hidden in the text of scripture. Well, it caught on because it's very, very attractive to say, oh, this guy knows something that others don't know. It caught on and Alexandria became known as a center of Bible study concentrated on, on allegorizing scripture. Origen, who lived in the second and third century, he was part of this movement that continued on in Alexandria. Origen developed a system of viewing scripture as representing metaphysical realities of body, soul, and spirit. And listen to this. The literal and historical sense of scripture represented the body, that which you could see. The moral sense of Scripture represented the soul or the mind, and the spirit was the ethereal, the highest, the most glorious philosophical sense of Scripture. Can you hear, even by that description, the physical is downgraded as the lowest? And because of these two effects on Bible study methods on Christian theology, there's been a natural consequence, and it's a scary one. And that consequence is that the educated theologian as seen is seen as being much more able to find the hidden meanings of Scripture than the average church member. The regular people in the church can't fully understand the meaning of a text without a highly trained theologian. Now, I'm not talking about the obvious value of preachers and teachers in the church who explain the text of Scripture in a short amount of time, which would have taken you much longer to discern on your own. I'm talking about the idea that no normal person would ever reach certain conclusions about Scripture unless a theologian told him what he's supposed to think and you're supposed to go, ooh, I never would have seen that. You want to know why? Because it's not there. Let me give you a couple of examples. One example, a scholar on the book of Job comments on the Leviathan, the sea monster mentioned in Job. Now, the context of Leviathan is that God is challenging Job, who has been questioning God. And in chapter 41, God essentially says this, I'll tell you what, you can question me. You can put me on trial as soon as you can catch a sea monster. As soon as you can dominate the earth just like I do, then you can put God on trial. Obviously, it's, it's hyperbole. Obviously, it's, it's sarcasm on God's part. Leviathan was an actual sea creature Job would have been familiar with. But here's what this particular scholar says. Quote, Readers are often confused that although Satan is the prominent adversary of Job 1 and 2, he seems to disappear after that. Also, we note that although the book often speaks of creation in the fall, it has until now said nothing about the agent of the fall, the serpent. A likely solution is that Satan has not been forgotten, but has reappeared at the end as the serpent Leviathan. 
First of all, there's nothing in the text to tell the reader to believe this. The only reason the reader can believe this is because the theologian said so. And secondly, it violates the whole context of what God is saying to Job. Well, let me give you an example more closely related to eschatology, to the end times. I'd like to quote a particular theologian who's written a, a very comprehensive work on covenant theology just in the last few years. And to be fair, typical for covenant theologians, his views on the gospel are spot on. They're gloriously right on the mark, very faithful to the reformers and the reformed theology. But when it comes to the kingdom of Christ, his theology leads him rather than scripture leading him. And he characterizes God's promises to Israel as simply pointing to a greater reality. But I want you to listen to the language he uses. I I want to give you a long quote, but then I'm going to go back and break it down. And I have a reason for giving you the whole quote up front. Here it is. The promises of the prophets contributed a great deal to pushing Israelite hopes beyond their present situation to something more ideal, something more perfect, something more permanent. Yet... For all the quantity of revelation given to Israel, it was given through the mode of mystery and the medium of typology. The promises of the future kingdom and covenant of the Messiah are all contained within the language of the typical realm, meaning symbolic. The revelation of the perfected nature through the imperfect present, that is, the typological nature of the kingdom of Israel and its covenants, constituted the mystery of Christ. The messianic hopes of the people under the old covenant, therefore, were commonly restricted to an idealized version of their present existence. They saw Messiah as bringing them victory over foreign powers, rebuilding their temple, and inviting the nations to become Jewish. And his conclusion is that all the symbolic promises made to Israel now find their fulfillment in the church age. Now, first of all, I read you that whole paragraph to ask you this question. Did you find that difficult to navigate? I did. I'm fairly well educated. It's so high and lofty, and the trouble with that is that this particular author's whole book is like that, and that's fairly typical for this system of theology. But let's slow down, and let's dissect a few of those statements that went by quickly with as much objectivity and fairness as we can. The promises of the prophets contributed a great deal to pushing Israelite hopes beyond their present situation to something more ideal, something more perfect, something more permanent. Absolutely, we would agree with this. The vast quantity of promises to Israel concerning land and vineyards and peace with their neighbors, prosperity on their farms, livestock, cities, glorious honor by all the nations. This is undeniable. He goes on. Yet, uh uh-oh, for all the quantity of revelation given to Israel. What is that saying? He's saying, I admit there is a vast quantity of promises given to Israel. Yet for all the quantity of revelation given to Israel, it was given through the mode of mystery and the medium of typology. What he's just said is that all the vast numbers of promises made to Israel have been given through mystery and typology, that the physical promises to Israel are fulfilled spiritually, not physically. See also Plato and dualism. He says this, The promises of the future kingdom and covenant of the Messiah are all contained within the language of the typical realm, meaning the symbolic realm. What is this? This is a blanket statement that all of the physical promises to Israel and to the world are symbolic of some greater reality. He does nothing to prove this. 
except to have a giant section in his book on the study of typology and scripture, which actually does nothing to prove that the promises of Israel are merely symbolic. doesn't prove anything except that he knows what typology is. He just doesn't know how to apply it properly. He says this, the revelation of the perfected nature through the imperfect present, that is the typological nature of the kingdom of Israel and its covenants constituted the mystery of Christ. Let me, let me kind of interpret that for you. He just relegated the entire kingdom of Israel to a symbol. He says this, The messianic hopes of the people under the old covenant, therefore, were commonly restricted to an idealized version of their present existence. They saw Messiah as bringing them victory over foreign powers, rebuilding their temple, and inviting the nations to become Jewish. Side note, there's no scripture that says, I invite all the nations to become Jewish. That's not the point. But did you catch what any Christian Jew would call an insult? The messianic hopes of the people were commonly restricted to an idealized version of their present existence. Why are these verses, hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of them in the Old Testament, why are they an idealized version of the present existence of Israel? Because that's what God told them. It's insulting to say that that's not really what it meant. How would you understand this? Isaiah 60, 21. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may show forth my beautiful glory. Another theologian who relegates the promises made to Abraham and Israel to the realm of the symbolic, he writes this, arguing that since circumcision going all the way back to Abraham was a symbol of God's covenant, then everything else associated with God's covenant with Abraham is also a symbol. He says this, Will they look to the types, circumcision, physical nation, plot of land in the Middle East, or to the antitypes, meaning the greater fulfillments, circumcision of the heart, kingdom that cannot be seen, and the new earth? Did you notice A physical nation must only be a symbol of a kingdom that cannot be seen. See also Platonism. And a literal Israel, which this author insultingly calls a plot of land in the Middle East, is symbolic only of a new earth. By the way, there's an Israel and a new earth. That's another topic for another day. That's not a Bible study method. That's a belief system going all the way back to Plato, now being foisted on the Bible. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone, that's our only standard of truth. And yes, we consult the wise study of many believers throughout the centuries, but they're not authoritative. And how much more do we ignore then pagan philosophy? Pagan philosophy should have no voice in our understanding of the Bible. Scripture says what it means and means what it says. To take a topic as massive as the entirety of God's promises to Israel and simply arbitrarily decide that it's all symbolic. This is an unacceptable damage to the doctrine of sola scriptura. Let me give you one more line of evidence. The beginning of trouble, the nature of humanity, the result of procreation, the corrupting of the bibliology Kind of did everything we did now just for this moment, so thanks for putting up with this. The last one we'll call the consistency of creation. The consistency of creation. I was going to preach this message on our baptism night, and with 19 minutes left in the evening, I felt like we probably shouldn't try to do this because I didn't want to 
rush through this. If I had enough time, we could make a pretty easy comparison to show the consistency of God's redemptive plan concerning the physical. If we compared Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, the original creation and the new earth, we could make a comparison. And without delving into the details, both Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 2, 21 and 22 highlight physical realities. Let's give you a few examples. Nations, vegetation, trees, sun and moon. Now, Revelation 21.3 says that New Jerusalem will have no need of the sun and moon. There will be a sun and moon, though. Living creatures, mankind having dominion, plants that we use for food, a river from a central location, gold, jewels, and the tree of life. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22. God is consistent. He created the physical world to be subdued and ruled by mankind. That will be the final state as well. But that's widely accepted, and that doesn't prove a millennial kingdom, an intermediate kingdom. But what if all those physical realities that I just listed from Genesis 1 and 2 and the final state in Revelation 21 and 22 are also cataloged in Scripture as physical realities in the intermediate millennial kingdom of Christ? What if they are? And the reasonable response to this is to believe, listen carefully, to believe that if the world of Genesis 1 and 2 is real with physical realities, and if the world of the final state in Revelation 21 and 22 is real with physical realities, then it's patently illogical to say that the millennial kingdom in between is symbolic and invisible. That makes no sense. That's totally inconsistent, and that's the product of Platonism. That is not the product of Bible study. Let's consider those things. Nations. Genesis 2 speaks of the nations of Edom, Havilah, Cush, and Asher, or Assyria. Isaiah 7, 17-20 tells of the day when Israel is regathered in the kingdom of Christ, and one of the places that they come from is the land of Assyria. Isaiah 11, 12-16, which tells of Israel's regathering, God mentions the nations of the Philistines, Edom, Moab, Ammon, and Assyria. Isaiah 19, 23-25, showing the, the beloved relationship between Israel and all the redeemed nations of the world. God calls Egypt, my people. He calls Assyria, the work of my hands. He calls Israel, my inheritance. In fact, God describes this highway from Egypt all the way to Assyria with Israel in the middle. Why? So that the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Zechariah 14.6, when Christ returns, the nations that went up against Jerusalem, referring to the battle of Armageddon, will come to Jerusalem annually to worship the king. Jeremiah 3.17 promises that the world will call Jerusalem the throne of Yahweh and that, quote, all the nations will gather to it, to Jerusalem. How about vegetation and trees? Genesis 1.11, then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. Isaiah 35.1 tells of deserts being turned into gardens of flowers when they see the glory of God revealed on the earth. Psalm 107.35 says that in the day when God gathers Israel back together, He'll make the wilderness like a pool of water. In other words, great greenery and lush vegetation. 
Ezekiel 47, 7 and 8 tells of the time of Christ on the earth being a time when, quote, there were very many trees on the one side of the river and on the other. In the day when the inhabitants of Jerusalem will never weep again, Isaiah 30, 23 says, He will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the produce of the ground and it will be rich. How about the sun and moon? Genesis 1.16, so God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and also the stars. Isaiah 30.26, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days. When does this happen? The verse continues, on the day Yahweh binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. In other words, when he regathers Israel. Now, why will the sun and moon shine seven times brighter? Think about the great tribulation. Revelation 6.12, the sun becoming black as sackcloth, the whole moon becoming like blood. Revelation 8.12, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars are struck, they're darkened. Revelation 9.2, a great smoky darkness on the earth with the sun darkened further. By the end of the great tribulation, if I can put it this way, the world will have grown used to darkness and dimness and haze and shadows. That will be the world. But the day Christ returns, Zechariah 14.7 says, it will be a unique day which is known to Yahweh, neither day nor night, but it will be that at evening time there will be light. Now the sun and the moon are restored to their former glory and better. How about living creatures? Genesis 1, 20-25 describes the creation of birds, sea creatures, cattle, creeping things, beasts on the earth. Isaiah eleven six describes the time of Christ's rule on earth as a time when the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the young boy will lead them. Can you imagine telling your four-year-old, go get, the, go get the lions and bring them into the yard. Ezekiel 47, beginning in verse 9, describes the fish of the river coming from Jerusalem as swarms and very many fish, and like the fish of the great sea, very many. The fishermen will be spreading their nets and bringing in massive hauls of fish. How about mankind having dominion? Genesis 1.26, the decree of God for mankind to have dominion over all creation. Skip ahead to Revelation 5.10, the saints in heaven proclaim to Jesus Christ that he has, by his death, purchased people from every part of the world. Why? Because you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Why has God purchased from, for salvation people from every part of the earth? Because they're coming back to rule there. Paul proclaimed in 1 Corinthians 6 2 that the saints will judge the world. There's only a need for judgment when there are people who need judging. And those are the sinful descendants of the survivors of the Great Tribulation. Revelation 20, verse 4 describes thrones of saints, and judgment was given to them, and the martyrs of the Great Tribulation came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. How about abundant food? You ever think, well, well, in heaven and on the new earth, I'm not going to need food. What did Jesus do in his glorified body? He ate. 
Genesis 1.30, God told Adam, I have given every green plant for food after Christ returns. Joel 2.24 says, the threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. How about a river from a central location? Genesis 2.10, now a river went out of Eden to water the garden and from there it divided and became four rivers. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 6, Joel 3.18 and Zechariah 14.8 all describe a river coming forth out of Jerusalem going into two different directions. All these passages are in the context of what? When Christ has returned and set up his kingdom. How about gold and jewels? Genesis 2.12, now the land, the gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. Isaiah 54.11 and following describes a day of total peace of Israel when God himself is there teaching all of them. And he describes the rebuilt Jerusalem during this kingdom time with foundations of sapphires, battlements of rubies, gates of crystal, walls of precious stones. That there will be such wealth that, oh, look at all these emeralds. Let's use them for mortar. Isaiah 60, in three different places, describes the gifts that will be brought to Jerusalem. Gold, silver and gold, gold and silver. How about the tree of life? Genesis 2.9, the tree of life also is in the midst of the garden. During the reign of Christ on earth, Ezekiel 47.12 says this, And by the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows out from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And you say, well, that doesn't say that's the tree of life. How about New Jerusalem on the new earth? Revelation 22, 2. In the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What are the trees described in Ezekiel 47? The tree of life in multiple forms during the reign of Christ on earth. I believe I've just proven to you it is utterly inconsistent to deny a physical, glorious, intermediate kingdom of Christ on earth Because not only is the very real Genesis 1 and 2 world parallel to the very real Revelation 21 and 22 new earth, but Genesis 1 and 2 are also paralleled by the same elements in the millennial kingdom of Christ. Real, physical, material, glorious elements that God will gift to us once again in their much more glorified form. Now we can finish Romans 8. Verse 20, and now you understand this thoroughly. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, But also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. God is in the process of redeeming mankind, and with it, the creation gets redeemed with us. Not dualism. But God's perfect plan of a physical and a spiritual world to enjoy 
and in which to serve the visible Jesus Christ, the physical Jesus Christ. There's no need to separate the physical and the spiritual. That is worldly. That is a pagan philosophy. The physical and the spiritual go together. The only time the physical and the spiritual are separated is when we die. And the whole point of that is that God will bring that back together. So, what's the spiritual danger of dualism? The spiritual danger of dualism is that when you drive on a rare, clear day in Bakersfield, California, to the south, and you see the mountain range through which you'll drive on the grapevine if it's ever open on occasion, dualism says, boy, that's beautiful. Too bad it's really not that important. Sound theology says, boy, that's beautiful. I can't believe I'm going to get to enjoy things infinitely more beautiful than that for a thousand years with Christ. Which one gives more glory to God? Obviously, the second one. Beware of spiritual dualism. It is not biblical. It is not good for your soul. Every blessing that we have will be replicated in in greater form in the millennial kingdom, and that's something to look forward to. Amen? Let's pray together. We look forward, Father, to the reign of our visible King, Jesus. We look forward to to an earth in which the lion lays down with the lamb, to which a child plays with poisonous snakes, which lions and goats play together, in which the redeemed of humanity, glorified now after this age, will reign with you, Reign with Christ. What a glorious day that will be. And then as the world begins to rebel once again from the descendants of the great tribulation, that Christ will fulfill His mandate to crush His enemies under His feet. And then as 1 Corinthians 15 says, then comes the end when Christ presents a perfect, sinless, deathless kingdom to you, His Father, as a eternal gift of love. Thank you, thank you, thank you that we get to be a part of that through the cross of Christ, that our future is truly glorious and that while we have pains in this life, even the physical pleasures we enjoy are just a shadowed reminder of the glories that we will receive as your dear children in the coming kingdom. We look forward to this and we would join with the Apostle John. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.